0: You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com.
1: Well, it's so good to see you all today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Lance, and I am one of the teaching pastors here at Calvary. I'm really excited to kick off a new series that we're going to be all in all the way up until Easter weekend. We're going to be talking uh, over the next five weeks about questioning Jesus. And uh, this past Wednesday, how many of you saw people with some black on their forehead? Anybody see that? Yeah? Yeah, I, I saw that everywhere. And, you know, maybe that's your tradition, maybe it's not. But what a lot of people do, it was Ash Wednesday, right? It's the beginning of the Lenten seasons. It's the time where... Even though the rest of the year or throughout our lives we really focus on Jesus, this time of year especially, right? We're really beginning to tune into who Jesus is and what this means and how symbolic it is to us in our faith, I mean for the past 2,000 years we've been celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and despite the longevity in which we've been celebrating that and despite the Lenten season and Easter and all of those things, There's still a lot of questions out there regarding Christianity, isn't there? There's a lot of questions out there regarding Jesus and faith. Some of those questions are unasked questions. They've not even been uttered. A person has thought them but they've never really carried them through. Some of them are unanswered questions. Maybe they've asked them but they've never got the answer that they were looking at There's a lot of doubt out there still, and denial, and maybe some even in this room this morning. You've got some of those unasked, or unanswered, or some of that that doubt. So what we're gonna do over the next five weeks is we're just gonna dive in to this series, Questioning Jesus. And what we're gonna do every week is we're going to look at interactions that Jesus had with other people. And they all revolved around a question either they asked or he asked. And in these questions, we're hoping to find some answers to important things. So what I really want to do is I want to encourage you to dive in. I want you to dive in not just as a hearer, but as a participant, someone that maybe you begin to ask questions that you've not asked before, or maybe you have someone in your life Someone that's close to you, and maybe you know they have questions, this might be a great opportunity to say, hey, we're having this series. And it's okay to question. It's okay to ask. Come, listen. Let's go to church together. We'll go out to dinner after. Maybe you'll even pay for their meal, right? But it's a good opportunity to question Jesus. So this morning, this is the question we're going to look at. The question Jesus asked in John chapter 1, what do you want. What do you want? Well, speaking of questions, anybody here knows someone who asks a lot of questions? I was going to go with know anybody who talks a lot. But I thought that one might be, da- yeah, exactly, that's exactly what I thought I would get, was this or this or this, right? Because we all know people who talk a lot, and I thought that would, but, man, we all know somebody. Like, all of the parents with toddlers right now are like, yes. I know someone who asks a lot of questions and they're just holding back the violent convulsion right now, right? (laughs) Like, kids are expert question askers. Can we, can we, when, where, what? What's a kid's why, yeah, I forgot that one, right? (laughs) That was a parent of a young kid, I'm almost positive, right? The all-time favorite kid question, are we there yet, right? But kids, man, they are expert question askers and they ask and they ask and they ask and we answer and we answer and we answer and guess what? They ask some more, right? They're just so curious. And man, they are—you know—they're not just expert question askers. They are expert rapid-fire question askers. Like, mom, 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 dad, 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 da, da, dad, dad. Da, da, da. Right? Like it's this this is a tornado of questions. And this is especially dangerous if you're distracted, right? like you're doing something else, then it's not just, that dad, that. it's, right? It's like, you know, they wanna get your attention because they got these questions. And then again, if we're a distraction, it normally goes something like this, what, 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 what do you want? Anybody? Got a few honest souls in this place, right? <laughs> what do you want and when we say it that way it's not how can i help you lovely little cherub (laughs) it's how can i get you to stop asking me questions and smacking me on the leg right now right it's how can this what do you want Listen, I, do, I actually do a lot of public speaking, not just in church, but my job requires me to do a lot of seminars. I participate in a radio show on a weekly basis and all kinds of stuff. And inevitably, there's a lot of adults out there like kids, right? And they're just asking questions all the time. And, you know, it's funny as you're sitting up there and watching them ask questions, everybody else in the room. First question huh, everyone's got a question. Second question third question. And then they'll start prefacing their questions. They get into question eight, and what do they always say? Well, this is probably a stupid question, right? And, you know, everybody around them, you can see them beginning to get annoyed and frustrated, and body language changes, and they're rolling their eyes. And sometimes I see them start to stack their stuff, like they're getting ready. If there's one more question from this person, they're leaving, right? Like it can be so annoying. So I thought as we start this series questioning Jesus, it got me wondering Does God get annoyed by our questions, our continual asking, like we get annoyed sometimes? Like, does God get frustrated? Is he aggravated by our curiosity, our quest for answers? And maybe, maybe you've wondered that. You, you have a lot of questions. Like, and I hear people say all the time, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this, right? Um, this is my one question. And I always think, why not ask now? Like, he's still there, right? He can talk to you now. But, like, people have this just thought, and, like, does God really get frustrated truth is, we don't just have questions, do we? We have a lot of pain. We have a lot of hurt. You ever talk to God about your pain, your hurt, never wonder? So you get tired. So you get tired of this. Maybe you have some confusion. What about doubt? Anybody here ever struggle with doubt? You ever wonder if God gets tired of your doubt? Like, so if we're going to do a series on questioning Jesus, I guess we got to actually kind of address this first issue. What does God think about all our questions, all our confusion, all of our doubt? What about when our doubt seeps into skepticism? And what when our skepticism becomes cynicism? I don't know about you, but I've wondered sometimes, man, is God like I am with my kids sometimes? Does he get frustrated with me? Tired of me? And I really think this is an important question to ask and to answer. How does God feel about my struggle with faith? How does God feel? With my struggle with faith in general or aspects of faith, how does God feel about my intellectual objections? How does God feel about my emotional objections? Does he tire of my investigation? Does he tire of my interrogation? Because I don't know about you, but I've interrogated God sometimes. Like, why? What? Why didn't this happen? Why didn't you take care of this? Why didn't you change this? Like, does God tire of this? Thankfully, the book of John gives us great insight into the posture of Jesus. So if you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone and you want to turn to the fourth book of the New Testament this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 1 today. But before we jump right into the chapter, I wanna kinda lay the framework of what's happening in this chapter because again, it lends credence to this question, does God tire? Does God get frustrated? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you just feel like he doesn't wanna deal with your doubt anymore. He doesn't wanna deal with your questions anymore. So here we go, John chapter one. So, just so you know, before we start reading verses, John chapter 1 is a chapter of introductions. There's actually three introductions in this chapter. The first introduction is John the Apostle, one of the earliest followers of Jesus. John the Apostle is introducing Jesus from eternity. Okay? He's introducing Jesus from eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's introducing Jesus, uh, and he was in the beginning with God. So he introduces John, he introduces Jesus as the Word of God. What does that mean when he calls Jesus the Word of God? You know what he's saying? That he's the perfect physical embodiment of the things God has said.
0: I mean, I love that. In the
1: beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and and he was in the beginning. Like Jesus, let me introduce you to the perfect physical embodiment of everything that God has said. And then he goes on in the next few verses, if you have it open, you'll be able to see it there. But he calls Jesus light, and he calls him life, and he says he's full of grace, and he's full of truth. So we see John the Apostle introducing Jesus from eternity. Then what we see is John the Apostle introducing a man named John the Baptist. Verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. So Jesus from eternity, and then John introduces John the Baptist, and what's John the Baptist's job? What's his role? His role is to point people to Jesus. So Jesus from eternity, John, John's job is to introduce Jesus to earth. It's to get everybody on earth to understand who Jesus is. Now again, you have to understand the climate of Israel at the time. At the time when John was born, there was a ton of curiosity. There was a ton of longing and eager expectation. It's been over 400 years in the mind and the heart of the people of Israel since they've heard from God. And here comes John to introduce people to Jesus. And they're wondering, who will be the Savior? Who will, who will he be and when will he arrive? Again, it's hard for us to really wrap our minds because we haven't waited for something like that with such great anticipation like the people of Israel did. But the whole heart and the whole history of Israel is hinging On the arrival of this Messiah, who is it going to be? And along comes John the Baptist. And aside from his nasty little habit of eating locusts and dipping them in honey, right, he does Messiah-type things. He speaks boldly, even prophetically. He's baptizing people. He's calling them to repentance into a relationship with God. In the minds of everyone that's looking on at John the Baptist, you know what they're saying? He's doing Messiah type things. He must be the Messiah. And he quickly gains a reputation and status and standing. uh, And people begin to follow him in large numbers. uh, And as they start to follow him, he starts getting a lot of questions. Actually, the Jewish leaders of the time, and you can read all of this in John 1, the Jewish leaders send, send their priests and their Levites, the biggest people they can of the day, to ask John questions, and this is what they're asking. Verse 21, are you the prophet we are expecting? Like, there's so much interest in who John is. And they don't stop there. They ask very specifically are you Elijah? Then they ask, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And John, again, it's all in there. He just keeps saying no, no, no. But they keep asking because they're curious. uh, They're anxious. They're skeptical. At the heart of it, they're really starved. Like, again, if you think about this in the context of human history, they're starved for hope. They're starved for someone to be the answer for what the promise has always been. And this is what John says to all their questions. Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. And then he quotes Isaiah in another verse in John 1 and he says, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. So they're coming to John the Baptist. They're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? They're peppering him with questions and over and over and over again, he just keeps saying, no, it's not me. I'm not the answer. For as great as he was, for as inspiring as he was, he wasn't The answer to what they were anticipating. And John just keeps deflecting them to Jesus. As a matter of fact, two times in this chapter, we see a phrase repeated word for word. Like as John's getting all these questions twice, he repeats a phrase. It's really important because it's the crux. Of what we want to talk about in this message this morning. Once, the first time he says this phrase to the crowds in general. Again, people flock to him all from everywhere. And he says this to all of them. Then the very next day, he uses the exact same phrase. To two people. So let's look at them. Let's read these two verses together. First one is John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one I was talking about. So he pronounces this to the crowds. And then the very next day, verse 35, the following day, John was again standing with two of the disciples. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, There is the Lamb of God. Now, again, got to think the context of who's there. These are the people of Israel. Do you think they would have understood the phrase Lamb of God? They would have absolutely understood the phrase Lamb of God. Why? Because their whole sacrificial system, the whole way that they were made right with God was through a lamb, right? So when John says, look, the Lamb of God, They really understood what was happening. But can I just say, this word look doesn't really do justice to what's going on in this moment of time. The King James uses a word. It's not look. It's behold. Behold. And in the greek it's ede it's three little letters ED, but it means to see or call attention to now again understand cuz when i say look that can mean a lot of different things right i mean look could be like you know look, look, look listen when he uses the term here behold it's not john talking to the two disciples hey look over there oh you missed it <laughs> no big deal No, the Greek language of the New Testament is an incredibly context language. There's actually nine tenses in the Greek language. I mean, it's incredibly complex. This little word, behold, and I know I'm getting deep here, but stay with me. This little word is in the active imperative tense or voice. So what it really means is You have to see this. Behold. It's like he's got a huge microphone. Not, hey, look over there. Behold. Look over there. It's almost like he's screaming from the top of his lungs. You do not want to miss this. So when you read this, look, the Lamb of God. Imagine Intensity, imagine inflection, imagine insistence. And again, the term itself actually carries the connotation of not a glance, but a gaze. So here's John the Baptist tasked with introducing Jesus to humanity. Everybody's clamoring, looking after John the Baptist, asking him questions. And John just says, Look over there. Don't just look over there. Behold. Don't just glance. Gaze at the Messiah. John is basically saying, listen, you have to see this for yourself. Ever ever have someone come to you and say, you can't miss this? Like, you just can't miss. You've got to see this. That's what's going on. Right now in this passage of Scripture, John, as emphatically as he can say it through the word behold, is saying, you can't miss this. Now again, think about this. In the context of what's going on, the crowds, especially these two disciples, they really looked up to John the Baptist, didn't they? I mean, the Bible uses the phrase, they were following him. You know what that means? They went with him wherever he went, everywhere. They were his followers. They looked up to him. They revered him. They respected him. And here's what John the Baptist says. Don't look here. Look over there. Behold The Lamb of God, look over there, but take it a step further. I don't think John was just saying, look over there. You know what I think he was saying? Go over there. Like, when you really want to look at something closely, what do you do? I'm really harboring the edge here, right? But you get as close. Like, ever been to the zoo before? Like, what do you do at the zoo? Anybody do that? You get as close as you can. That's, that's what's going on here. Get as close as you can. Now, I love this part. I think this is absolutely hilarious. John chapter 1 verse 37. When John's two disciples heard this, so they heard, behold, the Lamb of God. Look, don't just look, gaze, don't just gaze, go. Go. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. So just think about what's going on here. They hear this. They look at John. They look at Jesus. They look at John. It really would have been better if I did this the other way, right? I should have said, look at John. Look at Jesus. Look at John. That would have been perfect. Why didn't I plan that? Why didn't you tell me where you were sitting this morning? Let's try this again. His name's John, by the way. (laughs) Look at John. They look at Jesus. They look at John. And they're gone and it says they start following, like, like now again, we know from reading the whole New Testament, John and John 3.30 said, I must decrease so that he must increase, so he didn't have an issue with this, but in that moment when John said with such passion in his voice, behold, the Lamb of God, they took one look at him and then they headed the other way following after Jesus, and they don't just start walking, right, uh, they're it appears if you read the passage you got to read the bible it's fascinating the bible is amazing you got to take the time to really dive into it they're not just walking if you read it they're stalking like <laughs> like they're stalking jesus it's pretty noticeable Because after a period of time, we get to verse 38. Jesus looked around, saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. Hmm. Now, do you think the what do you want was what we do? What do you want? Like, can you see Jesus turning around? What do you want? Like, it, was it one of those what do you wants that we do to our kids sometimes? Was it, how do I get this person to stop bugging me? How do I get this person to leave me alone? Was it a frustrated and an exasperated Jesus? Or was it a, what do you want? How can I help you? What can I do for you? And I love their response in verse 38. They replied, Rabbi. Now, again, this isn't a big term in our current culture, but this was a huge term in that culture. Rabbi, which means teacher. And then they asked Jesus a question in return. When he said, what do you want? They said, where are you staying? Now, again, rabbi is a respect word. It's a term that you, you would use when you wanted to follow someone. Again, if you dove into the culture of that day and you really knew what was going on, when someone identified someone as rabbi, they were basically pledging themselves to learn and to follow that person at all costs. So Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Rabbi. Rabbi. You know what they were saying? I want to learn from you. I believe there are things that you can teach me. Rabbi, I think this is such an amazing exchange when you really understand the heart of it. What do you want? I want to learn from you. I want you to teach me, and then they ask the question: Where are you staying? You all love this, right? Again, you got to read the Bible creatively. Like it's just amazing. Like these dudes are like, two dudes are like, "Where's your house? What do you want? Oh, where's your house? Can we come crash? Can we hang out? Can we get together?" They literally like read it. They invite themselves to Jesus' place. Told you they were stalkers. <laughs> and as much as I love their response, Rabbi, I'm in love with Jesus' response. Like, Jesus' response. Like, listen, he could have responded in a lot of ways, right? What do you want? Where are you staying? So, again, Context. So you get up and leave the sanctuary today. What if I started doing this? All the way to your car, five feet behind you. Hey, where you guys live? <laughs> what time's lunch? What we haven't. Like think about it, when someone invites themselves to your house, what happens? Be honest, what happens when someone invites themselves to your house, especially at the last minute? Come on now, you kind of die inside, don't you, right? You kind of recoil, because what you're thinking about is, man, my underwear's on the floor, and the coffee is all over the table, and right? Like, you're like, ah! And they got this conversation going. What do you want? Where are you staying? Where do you live? Can I come over? Can we hang out? Where do you live? And I love Jesus' response. It's three words. Come and see. Without hesitation, Jesus is like, you want to see my house? Let's go. Let's take a closer look. Listen. Listen. Jesus knew they were not interested in his tent posts, right? Like they didn't want to go over and have tea and check out the backsplash and the vanity. That's not why they were coming and asking where his house was, right? That was not what was motivating them in this moment. It wasn't a 15-minute open house. It was much bigger than that, Jesus, what do you want? We need to come because we think you're rabbi. We think we can learn from you. And in verse 39, it says this. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying. And they remained with him the rest of the day. You know what I love about this entire scene? Jesus, if you write anything down from this message, write this down. Jesus invited their curiosity to become a conversation. Jesus invited their curiosity to become a conversation. This wasn't some 15 minutes quick, get them out. I don't want to deal with these people. What do you want? Rabbi, we think we can learn from you. Where do you live? Come and see. Not just for 15 minutes. They spent the rest of the day. Two hours, four hours, six hours. What do you think that conference, man, I would have loved to have been those two guys like a whole night of sitting down and talking with Jesus? What kind of questions do you think happened there? Like, they're definitely your, your kid. They're definitely your toddler. Why? Why? What? When? How? Like, they barely get an answer to the last question, and they're asking another one, because they're sitting in the living room of the Son of God. Like how amazing would this experience You know what I love about this story? It tells me that Jesus is a good host. He welcomes their questions. And this is so important. Can I tell you this morning? God cares about your questions. God cares about your questions. You know why He cares about your questions? because he cares about you. And you know what I've learned in all of these years? That he doesn't just care about my questions and he's not just gonna listen to my questions. You know what he listens to? He listens to my frustration. He listens to my hurt. He listens to my pain. He is patient with me in my anger and I've been angry at God more than once in my life. And you know what I found that in all of that anger and all of that frustration, even in the times where my anger turned to arguments and even when my anger turned to accusations, like God, you say you're powerful, you say you're loving, what is this? You know what I've learned? My doubt doesn't scare him. My anger doesn't scare him. My accusations don't scare him. My doubt does not scare him. Even when they descend into skepticism and even at times cynicism, they don't offend him. I mean, if you go on in the chapter, very quickly later it says, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Basically, when they go and say, hey, we found the Messiah. Where is he from? We saw his house. It's in Nazareth. They're like, ha, right? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. And they basically dog Jesus. Jesus could have been like, don't you know who I am? He wasn't offended. He wasn't put off. He didn't say, how dare you. He didn't say, how, this is so annoying. Listen, Jesus is a good host, and we just really need you to know that as we start this series that he's more than willing to listen to your questions, your confusion, your hurt, your doubt, your pain, your anger, your accusations, your arguments. He is more than willing to let all of those things become a conversation. He's not going to ignore you. He's not going to dismiss you. He's going to listen. And maybe that's something you really, really desire. Maybe that's something you really, really want, but you don't even know how to start can I just give you in the next two minutes a couple ways to do that the first one is prayer prayer is just a conversation it's like you talk to the person sitting next to you here's the problem with prayer though we usually pray to change things and usually we pray because we want to change the way God is doing things Prayer, listen, is not about changing God or changing the way he does things. Again, prayer, most of the time, is about a change that has to happen right here. But it can be a conversation. Read the Bible. Again, the Bible is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. See how he interacted with flawed, broken doubting, questioning people just like yourself. It's a starting point. Attend a small group. Big church is great, but I don't learn a lot staring at the back of someone else's head. You know what I learn from other people? When I'm sitting in a circle with them, especially when it's people that encourage me to be real. And you know what I love about our church? That we don't stamp a cookie cutter on what everyone's supposed to look like, and we don't say everyone has to be at the same place in their faith. Listen, we're all on a journey here, guys. And you know what you need to do with those questions? You need to get into a place where people encourage those questions, those doubts, those arguments, those accusations. That is so important. Plug into this series, Nick is going to preach about doubt and prayer and love and so many great things in the coming month or this coming month that are going to help us so much with some of our questions. As you know, every single month we do a book of the month, right? And, you know, sometimes you pick up the book because it resonates with you. This month we're doing this book, The Case for Christ. And there's actually a companion book to this. We don't have it in the lobby, but it's called The Case for Faith. And basically, these books are about people who have, this one's about people who have intellectual objections. Like, how could someone 2,000 years ago make a difference in my life? How could someone come back from the dead? And if they did, how can that be a, help me uh, be forgiven of my sins? This deals with intellectual objections. The other one, the case for faith, that deals with emotional objections. But, we almost dropped it. Okay. As we close, let me just tell you, The story of the man who wrote this book. His name is Lee Strobel. And Lee was a self-professed atheist from the time he was a teenager. His basic premise in life before he wrote these books, before he came to faith, was this. God did not create people. People created God. And the reason people created God is because they were afraid of death. So they made up heaven, and they made up an afterlife to make themselves feel better about dying. And in his mind, the author of this book, In the Case for Faith, his, in his mind, the thought of an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God was absolutely ridiculous. Now on top of his already be- the bent that he had naturally, he was a lawyer, or he studied law and journalism. So think about that for a minute. <laughs> he says that he was a jerk, right? <laughs> he-, he studied law and journalism. So he was the greatest of all skeptics, he was a jerk. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He won all kinds of awards. For, in- for investigative journalism. You know what he said? He said, I was a natural skeptic that boiled over into cynicism, and it cemented me in my atheism. There's no God. There's no afterlife. There's no judgment. Therefore, there's no accountability. I'm just going to live for whatever makes me happy. And he just tells the story of how immoral and drunken and profane and self-absorbed and self-destructive he was. And he said, people, all they saw was me winning all these investigative journalism awards during the week, but they didn't see me on Saturday night when I was falling down drunk in the alley in the snow. They didn't see me at the house when I was blowing up on my kids all the time and just spewing anger at them. Didn't see the fact that I was kicking holes in the walls in my home because I was so angry because even though I didn't think there was a God, I wasn't happy with my life. And he said his lowest point, was when his daughter was less than five years old, and she watched him, witnessed him kick a hole in great anger in the the wall of their living room. She picked up her toys and went into her bedroom. And he said that became the pattern of her life. Every time he would come home, she would go hide. Hide from this monster that her dad was. Well Lee's wife was an agnostic, she didn't know what to think about God, but through a coworker she started asking questions. And thank God her coworker was a good host. She became a follower of Jesus. She told Lee about becoming a follower of Jesus, and that cemented his anger. He said, "How could you get caught up in a cult?" And he was torn and troubled, and this is why he was torn, because he started to see her change in ways that were very appealing and attractive to him. But he was so mad. He was so mad at her because they didn't have the life that they used to have. You know what he said? I'm going to get my old life back, and I'm going to disprove the validity of Christianity. And he was arrogant enough to say that he was going to do it in a weekend. True story. I'm going to disprove Christianity in a weekend cuz once I do that I'll get my wife back and my life will go back to normal. Well, 2 days that weekend turned into 2 years. And every question he asked led to another question. More importantly, those questions they turned into answers. And after 2 years of an investigation to disprove Christianity on a Sunday afternoon in his living room. He said, I finally came to the place where I said, eventually, everyone on a jury has to make a decision, and he kneeled down in his study, and he surrendered his heart to Jesus. He became a follower of God. Listen to him recount the conversation of this with his wife.
2: She burst into tears, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she said, oh, honey, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I met some women at church, and I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is a hard-headed Hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, he will never bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly saint put her arm around her shoulder and pulled her to the side, and she said, "Oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope." And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, that says, "Moreover, I will give you a new heart." and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so what I never knew at the time, this whole two years that I'm on this investigative journey, what I never knew is every day my wife, behind the scenes, was on her knees praying that verse for me. Because somebody would say to me, well, Lee, tell me your story. How'd you come to faith? Okay, and I'll tell the whole story up to here, and I wouldn't know what to say. Because what, what, what stuck me was, was, how do I communicate to you? You didn't know me when I was literally drunk in the snow in an alley. You didn't know me when I was living my former life. So what words can I use to help you understand the difference Jesus has made in my life? You see what I'm saying? I, how do I explain that to you? Because you didn't know me back then. And I ask God, what do I say? And the only thing I can say is what happened to my little girl, Allison. Think about this for a second. Here's a little kid, five years old by then, when I came to faith. All she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole life. But starting on that Sunday afternoon when I gave my life to Jesus, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something is new with my dad. She's never studied ancient history, never interviewed a scholar, never studied archeology. span She's just five years old, but she could listen, she could watch, she could observe, and she did. She watched how God changed my life And it took about four or five months. And then one Sunday morning, she came up to Leslie. You know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, at age five, my little girl received this forgiveness and gift of eternal life from Jesus, became a child of God. Today, she's married to a seminary graduate. Uh, She's a novelist. She writes works of fiction, but they all have the message of Jesus woven into them. Her and her husband together write children's books about God.
1: Can you stand with me this morning? I love the one thing from that testimony. No one, no one is beyond hope. Let's pray. God, this morning, I want to pray for the people that are here in this place right now that have never begun a relationship with you, mostly because they've been afraid to start a conversation with you. And God, I just pray that from being in this place this morning, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you welcome their questions. That you welcome, even though you feel deep sorrow for the pain that they have been through, God, you are willing to listen to them pour out their pain, their hurt, their anguish, You'll listen to their arguments. You'll listen to their accusations. Because you love them. So God, I pray today that you would just begin, they would begin that conversation with you. And God, that you would begin to talk to them in return through your word, through other believers, through prayer, through books that they read. Father, I pray for Christians that are here and they have a strong faith in God, but life has crushed them. And even though they're, they're resolute in their belief in who they, you are, God, they're struggling with aspects of their faith. God, it's okay for them. Thomas was a follower. He poured out his doubt. God, there's not just safe places for seekers. There's safe places for Christians who are struggling. And I pray this would be one of those places. And Father, lastly, I pray for the people in our lives that aren't in this building today, but they desperately need Jesus. Jesus. Can you just say a prayer for them this morning? You know their names. You can even talk to them, to God right now about their names. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your siblings. God, I pray that as we enter this Easter season and all these questions about Jesus, God, that you would create opportunities, life changing, eternal, impactful moments, God, where people can begin conversations. good and you are loving and I just pray that you would begin and continue journeys of faith over these next few weeks and months God that you would restore families like we saw on the screen this morning that you would restore marriages that you would restore all that is broken And God we thank you for that today and we pray it in Jesus name everyone said. Amen. I want to thank you all so much for being here. Listen, God can do anything. Absolutely anything. Just start the conversation. I pray you guys have an awesome week. This is going to be a great series. Come back next week. Pastor Nick's going to talk about doubt. God bless you. Have a great